I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Philippians, to chapter 4. As this evening we continue our series, again throughout the series we've been looking at the thought life of Christian disciples, what are we called to set our minds on, to dwell upon, and Philippians chapter 4 provides something of a curriculum, a list, and we'll come this evening to the fifth term, something that we have been seeing, and hopefully you have been considering, is that there is an overflow. The things that you think about will overflow into other areas of your life. If you set your mind on that which is good, it will overflow in good ways. If you set your mind on that which is evil, it will overflow in harmful ways. And that applies to your spiritual life, your sense of well-being and joy, even as it says in verse 9, and the peace of God will be with you if you practice these things. And then also in your practical life, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Imagine if you were set to guard a well, knowing that the enemy wanted to poison it. And that is the circumstance we find ourselves in as we battle for our minds, that on a daily basis... We are trying to protect and to promote the health of what God has called us to. And with that in mind, we'll give attention to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, and especially the fifth term listed. Here together with me the word. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you that you hear your people when we pray. Father, we confess before you that in our fallen condition, our minds seem to run most easily anywhere but where they ought to go. Downhill is always unhelpful. We thank you that by your spirit you can incline us and you can cause what seems unnatural to become our new nature. We pray that you would use this evening as part of that ongoing work to nourish and to transform us through your word. For we ask these things in the victorious name of Christ our Savior. All God's people pray. Amen. Now if you were not here last week, then I'd let you know that I started last week in a way that will have bearing on this week as well, by stating that our understanding of a word is influenced by the associations we make with that word. And not everybody has the same bag, so to speak, filled with all the same associations. And so if you associate a word in one way and the Bible means it a different way, then it's necessary for you to discover the Bible has a different meaning. And if that was true last week, it's true this week. There are so many different ways that can occur. I was uh, struck this week as I was speaking with somebody about a farm. And how do, what associations do you have with farm? As I look out, I know that there are a number here who work in agriculture. But then also this morning I was looking out, I noticed somebody that I know works in IT and they work with a different kind of farm. And the context I encountered it in had to do with an array of data servers 
and it's called a farm. Word association matters if you want to know what we're talking about. And I put it to you to ask you, at first blush, what comes to mind when you hear whatever is lovely? Whatever is lovely. Because that's what we're called to set our minds upon, to think about, not just tonight, but in general. And so in your own mind, or maybe if you had a piece of paper and you were writing a list, what are the things that come to mind for whatever is lovely? Now, as at the beginning of the service, I mentioned clouds above, natural phenomena. I don't know if I'm more or less susceptible than others, but when I think of loveliness, I often think of the outdoors. Or maybe it is the visual arts or music that comes to mind for you in particular, whatever is lovely. Or maybe it's the human form. Maybe it's clothing. But all of those different things that I just described, the kind of loveliness that we're dealing with is called aesthetics. Aesthetics, really simply, is just a description of what we find beautiful or pleasing according to our senses. Beautiful or pleasing according to our senses. Is that what Paul, and really more importantly, the Holy Spirit has in mind when he says, think upon whatever is lovely? I would dare to say that many people, and myself at times, in reading this passage, we just take it for granted that our association is the right one, and therefore he wants us to, you know, get out of, you know, you've been thinking about all sorts of unhelpful things. Just go take a walk and look at beauty. And of course that would be beneficial, The Bible has other parts that talk about that. But is that what it's talking about here? Is that the loveliness that is here? The term that is found in this verse, it's the only place in all the New Testament that this particular Greek word occurs. It's a rare word. And so it's hard. You don't get the advantage of being able to compare it to other passages in the Bible to see how it's used. But the context gives you a clue. More often than not, your context is the best commentary you have. And look at verse 9. It says, put these things into practice. That these things includes whatever is lovely. It's a kind of loveliness that can be imitated. It's a kind of personal loveliness. Now, if we were to look out of the Bible, then we would find that this word, of course, was used in Greek writing all throughout the ancient world. You find it in the writings of the great Jewish historian Josephus also of another Jew named Sirach. And in those instances, it refers specifically to people who are beloved or who in some way are endearing. Beloved or endearing. And so it has to do with loveliness of character. Something that calls forth love from others. Something about when you think, oh, that person is endearing, something about them draws your love back to them. Now, one commentator puts it this way, just to summarize. The basic meaning of the word is that which calls forth love or inspires love. And here it has the passive sense of lovely, pleasing, agreeable, or amiable character. So it's a loveliness of attitude or behavior. And this is what the Holy Spirit is calling you to dwell upon then. He's calling you as a habit of life, not just tonight, but to make it a habit to dwell upon whatever expresses or inspires you to Christ-like love. That's what Paul was telling them to look at. He says, look at me. Look at the missionaries who I was with. Look at the way we lived among you and seek to imitate these things. And Paul says, I was doing it as Christ did. 
Is this one of the core areas of your thought life? To make it an intentional habit to look out there and to learn what is lovely behavior? What is behavior that's not just good, but in some sense causes others to reciprocate with love? It draws love out of others. If you can learn to live in that way, what a benefit it will be to the Christian community to live in a way that calls love out of other people. It's like having a bellows that blows on the coals and they get hotter. And that is what the apostle here, and really the Holy Spirit, is calling you to make it a focus of your life. Learn not just how to, in a vague sense, do what's right, but to love to do what's right in a way that brings it from others So as we consider this evening, this idea of dwelling on whatever is lovely, we're going to do so under two main headings, two main headings, and I'll announce each of them as we come to them. Now, of course, it is very difficult to act upon what you can't even describe. If you don't have a clear sense of whatever it is you're talking about, it's going to be very hard to act in that way. And this is our first main heading. I want to encourage you. In order to succeed in what you are called to here, meditate on biblical descriptions of love. Don't start outside of the Bible. Make it a habit. Find the places where the Bible itself describes what love is like, and particularly the kind of love that compels love back. We could go to many places, but tonight I'm going to limit it just to two. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 invite you to turn there. One of the reasons why I go to these two, though I know that they may be familiar to some of us, quite familiar, is because we have to start at the foundational passages. And these are, among us here, any youth who are here, these are the ones that you need to know. When you think about what love is, we come to these. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is sometimes called the great love chapter of the Bible. It has been said at a million, no exaggeration, I'm sure, million weddings. Million weddings, and for good reason. Verse 4 and following, hear what it says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, to be clear, that is not a definition of love. It's a description of love, of the way love behaves. A definition of love, and there are many, depending what aspect of love we're talking about, might be an affection that finds satisfaction in seeking the well-being of its object. And I'll say that again. Love is an affection that finds satisfaction in seeking the well-being of its object. In other words, true love wants others to be well. And that means wanting what God wants for those people. But if you genuinely love others, then this is the outcome. This is the life that flows out of it. As we read those things, patient, kind, does not envy, is not irritable, resentful. 
If you met a person who embodied all those things to the hilt, is that not the person that you want to be around? And that is Christ. And your future is to be among people so glorified that this is you too and everyone who knows him. But in this present time, he calls you to seek to imitate this. If there is anything in scripture worthy of deliberate study, this would be one, not simply to read it and try to understand the words in their original context, but by study here, I mean studying, asking, what would it look like in my practical life to do these things? Where are the areas that I tend to fall in respect to these things and why? And to make it a habit to try to memorize and to live according to them. Now, Philippians, look at me at chapter 2, and you'll see one further description. Having exhorted them to think on whatever is lovely, he, in fact, here exhorts them even more clearly on what that would look like. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love that is his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I remember reading that passage as a teenager and reading where it says, count others more significant than yourselves, and thinking, that passage wants me to be deceitful, to be false, because this is my arrogant teenage self. I don't think they are more significant than myself. So why would I treat them that way? That's objectively false, which is so arrogant. And yet, though I am older and you are older than you were, it still exists in us in a more subtle way when we think that or act from a core as though we are the main character in the story. And our anger is often resulting, even as I mentioned this morning, from an attitude that says, not thy kingdom come, but trying to establish your own kind of fiefdom in the world. And everything has to go my way and look the way I imagined. And we find that we are upset with others when they don't conform to our expectations, our vision of the good life not acknowledging that God has counted them significant in Christ. Didn't he not give his own son for them as well? And so they have a value that is extraordinary in his sight. And if you want to argue objective anyway, even if you were in some sense objectively more significant, let's say that you're a a famous, powerful person who can accomplish big things in the world, Christ is far more significant, and yet he humbled himself He humbled himself to love you. And it's that understanding then when he says, is there any comfort from love? Then do these things. And so it's the remembrance of where we stand in Christ that should bring us back to all of this. There are plenty of other descriptions of love in the Bible. And I leave you to study them. It is something that 
is relatively, thank God, relatively easy to study. There are many works, many Christian works. But before we end this evening, I want to lead you to some biblical demonstrations of love as well. Not just descriptions, but where we get to see love acted out. And this is our second main heading. And for that, I invite you to turn it your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 18. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. And that is true, especially when it comes to what it looks like, what love really means. You could read all kinds of things describing love. But then you experience it or you witness it and suddenly you have much better understanding. And thankfully, part of what God has done in the scriptures provide us with just, not numberless, but just a huge, huge number of demonstrations of love. And I would like to draw before you just a few of them, some more familiar, some less familiar. In 1 Samuel 18, it has to do with the love that Jonathan shows towards David. Jonathan is the son of King Saul. To all appearances, people were expecting that he would be the next king. At this stage, 1 Samuel 18, almost no one has any idea that God's eye is upon David. David is not the up-and-coming, but in 1 Samuel 18, what has just happened is that David has defeated Goliath. And Jonathan doesn't know all that's going to happen with David. He doesn't know God. Is, it's not as if he's hedging his bets. He's like, well, God is on David's side, so I'm going to get on David's side too. All that he knows is that whereas his own father and all the other men of Israel did not have faith in the Lord and courage to face the adversary, David did. And he did so in the name of God, and he didn't make a boast about himself. Jonathan is in awe of faith and godliness, and he's drawn towards it. And look at the description of his love in verse 1. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. If you haven't experienced it, pray that God would give you something like that in this life one or more persons that you are so, you adore the godliness that exists in them, what God has worked in them, that you have a companion in this life. And I thank God, I have been blessed with several, but I believe that you can as well if you will seek that. And here, Jonathan feels that. In verse 2, it says, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. And to make a covenant here means that he wants to make clear they've already got a good relationship, but he wants to put it down officially. I want you to know and have even stronger assurance about the way I feel towards you. It says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even the sword and his bow, and his belt. This is an incredible, humble demonstration of affection for David. Incredible. How many people in great, aside from all, you know, what we say we would do if we were in power, 
How many people in truly exalted positions of power would willingly give up their authority and their riches? No doubt Jonathan is wearing the second best robe in all the land, and he puts it upon David. This is a demonstration. When you love someone the way that Jonathan loves David, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice to sacrifice. Not in the same way. You're not sacrificing with remorse, but there's a delight in seeing another person blessed, and that's what Jonathan desires. There's another story, another demonstration in Luke chapter 7. This will be more familiar to many of you, I'm sure. Luke chapter 7. This is the story of the woman who anointed Jesus with very expensive oil shortly before his crucifixion. Basically, Jesus had been invited to a meal by a Pharisee. It's unclear why exactly the Pharisee invited him. He's probably curious, and people who are influential tend to want to rub shoulders with people who are influential, whether or not they respect or admire them. But there does seem to be uh, a certain unloving treatment that Jesus receives from this Pharisee. As they're having this meal, a woman comes in and pours out this extravagantly expensive perfume or oil upon Jesus. And several there take offense, thinking, what a waste. You know, they, she could have done something with that. Why, 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 why does she spend that upon him? And the Pharisee probably thinking, too, this Jesus doesn't deserve this. He's not an official. He's just some huckster who's very popular. But Jesus tells a parable, starting at verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that last line is important because it's not her love that saved her. Her faith was the instrument. But her love is the evidence that she had received the assurance of that forgiveness. Why is she kissing his feet? And why does she pour the oil on his feet? There are different guesses. I think the most solid has to do with the book of Isaiah. It was a common reading. We don't use a lectionary in this church where we read the same passages throughout the year from the Bible year after year. 
But in the Jewish lectionary, one of the key passages was in Isaiah, where it speaks of how beautiful are the feet of one who brings good news, the gospel of peace. And here she has, at some point in Jesus' ministry, heard him proclaiming that whereas Pharisees may stand outside of the kingdom for all their outward righteousness, yet he says that the Lord will dine with the prostitute, with the tax collector, with the lowest who ever believe. And she comes in and she is filled with love. And again, for her, this is a demonstration of this kind of drawing out love from Christ. First, he graciously pours out forgiveness. And that calls forth from her a response of willingness to sacrifice. Her love has its basis then, really, in the love that God has demonstrated to us in Christ. And I invite you to turn and look at one more passage, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 speaks of the love that has been revealed in Christ. What would we give to have spent a week with the disciples watching Jesus in action? And this is not to say that the Bible is insufficient, but it is not comprehensive either. How wonderful would it have been to hear the tone of Jesus' voice. You never get the impression that they are simply following him out of fear. They seem to like him. They love Jesus. And while he corrects them, you don't get the sense that he's a martinet who's got his ruler out and he's hitting them on the knuckles every time he senses that in their thought life they've gone astray. Though he's God and he knows how slow to anger he is, how patient he is with his disciples. And the fact that even, it's, it's not as if John, his disciple, who eats, remember at the Last Supper, they're eating and John is reclined against Jesus' chest. It's not as if over that three-year period, John became this perfect angel. He's still a sinner. Not that long before, he wanted fire to come down from heaven upon a town. Here, we see Jesus loving and being patient with people, but then it comes to its fulfillment in what's described in Romans 5, verse 5 and following. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here we know what love is. This is how we understand the measure of love. We were incapable of fulfilling any of the requirements. Even faith itself, he had to pour forth the Holy Spirit to transform our nature. And so this is a love that is not merited by anything in us, but it comes from Christ. This has then been poured into our hearts in order that it might pour out of us. And that brings us back then to the purpose. 
where we began tonight, Philippians chapter 4 at verse 9. Philippians 4 verse 9 says, put these things into practice. And God is calling you tonight to love. I realize that in a sense is the calling of every sermon because the whole law is summarized in love. But to what extent could this congregation, should this congregation be characterized by love? Philippians chapter 1 verse 9, he says, My prayer is that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Not long ago, I made a somewhat painful decision, not too painful, let's not be dramatic, made a choice to cut down the orange tree in my backyard. It was over 40 years old. And I had been warned when we moved in that it was probably only going to have a couple of years left. It was already past the typical age where citrus in Phoenix will continue to fruit. I remember when I first moved into that house, we had hundreds of oranges. Many of you had those oranges because we could not consume all the fruit coming from that tree. And then it gave out as it got older. And the last year of having that tree, last year, uh, we got maybe two dozen oranges off of it. And I calculated it was something awful, like 30,000 gallons of water is what's needed to maintain a citrus tree in full fruit. Thinking 30,000 gallons of water, 24 oranges, this doesn't make sense. The Lord did not create us in Jesus Christ with his Holy Spirit to have a life cycle that ends at about 40 years of fruitfulness. And yet I do think that some Christians adopt something of that attitude. They serve for a time, whether it's five years, 10 years, 40 years, and then they feel, I've, my fruit basket's full. But the thing is, the bellies remain hungry. Old fruit is not what's needed today. We need new fruit today. We need fresh love. And we need endurance that it would continue to fruit for many years to come. And so I would exhort you, study how to show a kind of love that is like that bellows, that stirs up love within and causes others to come to love. So that it's not just you going out and doing one good thing, but drawing others into it. It is possible for this church to become more and more like that. I think we should believe it is going to be more and more like that. And let's ask even now for God to do it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us a reminder in your word of what it is we're called to. We thank you that the system of beliefs that you have provided for us in Scripture are not simply about deliverance from individual woes, but always drive us more and more into a community, one that transcends this local church, even this present age, one that brings us into communion with innumerable saints and angels in glory, and with Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray, Lord, teach us how to live lovely lives, though we always get down on ourselves and the enemy constantly accuses. 
We ask that you, even if it is secret to ourselves, would cause it to be so that others would look at our lives and say, that is beautiful. With us, this is impossible, but with you, this is possible. We ask for the grace of Jesus Christ in his name. Amen.